0: I used to refer to Thailand as industrial tourism, where every tourist gets exactly the same experience, regardless of their frame of mind coming in. Um, Here it's not that way at all. It's what you get is what you put in. I think you're starting to see it also in Kalinga. Um, I think part of that is the tattoo tourism, which has turned Kalinga into a word with associations in in the lowlands. And those associations create value. People have sort of forgotten about the extent of the economic dislocation and how severe it actually was. Yeah, I've heard people saying that um, there was no traffic. There was no traffic under law. Nobody could afford a car. Whitewater is a different environment for a lot of people. and Because the guys here tend to be quite strong physically, they're used to being in control. They're used to sort of being dominant. And the first time you fall into a rapid, you realize that control is really not part of the picture. I sometimes miss the old Sagada, but at the same time, you have to recognize that that old Sagada did give a lot of opportunities to a lot of people, and that a lot of people had to leave to find work or to make any money. Um, some people want some things to stay the same, some people want to change them, but you know that whole evolutionary process is going to go on. You're never going to freeze it. I mean, there's a museum in Talk. it's quite a good museum. And if you want to see how things were, you go to the museum. But the community is not a museum. You know, it's, a, it's a living thing and it changes all the time.
1: From Sagada, that was Steve Rogers. And this is The Wildcast. Welcome to episode 11 of The Wildcast. And I talked to Steve Rogers in Sagada about his life in the Philippines, his vast experience working and living in the Philippines, and also, of course, his life in Sagada. We talk about quite a few different things, white water rafting, being right smack in the middle of EDSA during the EDSA revolution, working on platoon, and working with actors like Charlie Sheen that were filmed in the Philippines. He is one of the most insightful people I know. He lives a quiet life in Sagada, running an adventure tour company, taking people on canyoneering trips and whitewater kayaking. In fact, right before this whole lockdown, I was supposed to head over to see him and get my first dip into whitewater kayaking. I've had a kayak for about a year now, and I have not been able to get my kayak on the water because of my schedule, but due to COVID-19, we've had to change plans and essentially, I was supposed to be there the week of the lockdown, but this is such an insightful conversation with Steve. He is an incredibly, I would say, there is this depth of wisdom that comes from, I, I suppose, staying in Asia, living in different parts of the Philippines and experiencing the cultures of the different regions, including places like Sagada, that has evolved very much in the last twenty years or so. And here is his story. Let me share it with you and share it with the world. So how are you? How is life in Sagada now? Uh, It's a bit restricted,
0: but not outrageously so. I mean, we were supposed to stay home. Uh, We don't, but uh, you can't be out on the street. They do have checkpoints on the street. They're checking passes and things. But of course, there's all kinds of paths and trails that lead up in the forest. So we can go out and pick mushrooms. We can do um, some things. It's a little hard to go out on a bike ride, for example, because we use the roads for that, or at least to get access to trails. Right. It's it's probably better than about 99% of the world right now, or certainly of the country. We don't have any cases or any indication of cases in Savannah yet, so we're good on that score, uh, which is a good thing because we really don't have the capacity to treat them, so it's better to keep it out. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think I, I think you guys would be safe, I mean, in general, without having the Sagada people coming from Manila come home. So I think you, you'd be okay.
0: <laughs> yes, as of now, there's still pretty strict requirements on entry
1: and exiting and coming
0: back. But um, the question is, when they start to relax the rules, what happens? Um, I don't know when or if tourism is going to resume that's obviously a pretty distant prospect at the moment. But I think for a lot of people, it's a bit of an issue because that's where their money comes from. But
1: fortunately. For sure. And it's not going to be soon. I think it's. No. I'm just Baguio already announced that they'll, they'll be closing doors to tourism for at least four months before they. I mean, and Baguio is a bigger tourism center than Cigar. Yeah, I so think it's for also. I'm assuming Cigar will be the same.
0: We're also moving out of the season to begin with. Um, even in a normal year, That's right. July, August, September, are pretty much dead months for the tourism. So the earliest it would start up would be late October anyway, and who knows what's going to happen then. It's really way too early to, uh, to say. One thing I think will not happen again for maybe a long time is this whole package tour thing with uh, the stuffed vans. You know, for a long time, our peak season market has been dominated by these uh, local package tours that'll put 14, 15 people in a van and bring them up on a real sort of low-budget three-day, two-night tour, or even one night. And that, of course, I mean, 15 people in a van is not exactly social distancing.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. That's that's definitely going to go down. I think it's going to be, the trend will be more... I think uh family travel I would say people who are stuck in Manila who want to get out and but all these vans all these package tours they're just not going to be viable in terms of uh social distancing well plus nobody has so, any money plus nobody has any money yeah, which... I and mean, there's I'm just just looking at how many people are going to lose jobs because of this is I mean it's enormous <laughs> it's it's Unimaginable.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really kind of uncharted territory in terms of recovery from it. Um, there, you know, how do you actually kickstart it? How do you get things moving again? Uh, it's I think going to be a little more complicated than people seem to think. I mean, if you just taking off the restrictions will do something, but it's um, each thing you close has a knock on effect. Um, it's it's not only that say hotel shuts down. The hotel's demand for goods and services shut down. So their suppliers are shut down. Their suppliers are shut down. And so all down that chain, you have things stopping. And it's um, and even if the business opens up, if the customers aren't there, if the customers can't afford to the, the, the go, then uh, it doesn't
1: just start up again easily. Yeah, the whole value chain really is broken. So, I mean, it's it's really probably... Really difficult to get back to where we were. I mean, just two months ago, and uh, I don't know how long it will take. Really,
0: nobody. There's, there's nobody. Probably nobody. more than a year. Honestly, anybody who says they know how it's going to go is full of shit right now because there's just. Or, am I not supposed to say that? <laughs> no, or it's,
1: no, no, fine. <laughs> this is a this is a podcast. You can say whatever you want. Okay. So there's, there's no no restrictions. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, it's, it's just right now uncertainty is just the, the word of the day, and we just have to accept that. I mean, it's, people crave certainty. Everyone wants to believe that they know, because even knowing something bad is better than not knowing at all, um, and so people look right. for it. But I think right now, for starters, we just have to admit that we don't know. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. So you just have to be sort of light on your feet and ready for what comes and ready to adjust as it goes. But it makes planning a little difficult, obviously.
1: Obviously. This is going to hit Sagada quite a bit because Sagada is like a 100% tourism-centered economy. Not really. I mean, on the the outskirts of agriculture, but otherwise, like the main... Bulkiest tourism, is Well, it?
0: there's been a, a transition, obviously, in the last decade. Um, when I first came here in the well, it was early 80s, but that, that's moved on. But it, for a while, it was sort of a tripod with agriculture, tourism, and remittances. Um, Sagat has always been a relatively well-educated community, so a lot of people leave and they work, and they tend to work in relatively good jobs. Um, so they they send money back. So that's always been a a level of support to the economy. And that tripod has been kind of distorted over the last decade and even more so over the last five years because tourism, of course, has taken off. Now, what what does leave the economy a, a bit more resilient is that, first of all, most of the tourism businesses are locally owned, so it's not employees, it's owners. Most people own something. They own a house. Uh, very few people have got to rent. In fact, I don't think anybody who's really in rents. So that's true. Uh, that makes a difference. I mean, if you have, if you're an employee who's renting and your money's cut off, then you can't pay the rent, and your landlord has no money, and you can't pay for food. I mean, here agriculture is still producing. Pretty much everybody's still eating. Uh, if anybody's actually hungry in Sagata right now, it's pretty well hidden. Um, There's people that are maybe kind of bored with the food they're eating, but I don't think anybody's actually short food um, because we do produce food. In fact, right now it's cheap because there's less ability to send it out and less demand from the tourism sector. Um, Last year at this time, for example, um, vegetables were more expensive than they are now.
1: You right. always found Sagada goods to be more expensive than even here in Baguio and Trinidad.
0: Yeah, well, especially over the last decade, as the tourism picks up the basically just demand exceeds supply, especially the specialty goods, your coffee or strawberries or something like that, that um, the tourism, tourists will buy a little tiny cup of strawberries for 100 pesos, uh, which is maybe two, right. 200 grams. Just to say they had strawberries in Sagada, and take a picture of it, post it on Facebook. Um, And then the price goes up because we can't buy them by the kilo anymore because people would rather sell them by the 200 grams to the tourists. So, and of course, agricultural land here is limited, so you can't really increase supply that much. Um, Coffee actually got to a point where we were having trouble buying coffee locally because so many people wanted to buy it.
1: Right. But, but coffee is also a somewhat new industry in Sagada, isn't it? I mean, there's always been coffee, but just a few it, in the backyard. Yeah, it was, traditionally of the a, big farms too.
0: it was traditionally a backyard crop. And of course, Sagada doesn't have large land holdings. So you, there's not really a plantation option. You, can't, you couldn't go out and plant a large holding because nobody's got one. Um, or nobody had one until fairly recently when you have people. But that's another issue. Um, Right now, I think the biggest single coffee holding in Sagada is uh, Jen's place in Agit, which is a few hectares. But it's not like a situation where you're going to have people planting full-scale plantations to coffee or to anything else. Yeah, that's
1: tiny. A few hectares is tiny for a coffee plantation. Yeah,
0: in terms of of, uh, industrial, yeah. uh,
1: yeah. Especially, you can't really make significant amounts of money on a few hectares of coffee in general? Not significant in the
0: sense that um, in the industrial sense of getting really rich but one, right. thing they, one thing they have done with coffee which I think needs could be done more effectively with vegetables is to build value out of branding and to turn it into a premium product that um, we've seen this with the, the civet coffee That um, I don't think 99 out of 100 people could tell the difference between a cup of civet coffee and a cup of ordinary Sagada Arabic coffee, and you put the two cups in front of them. But because it's special, because it's branded, it has this sort of, right. it has this quinto that goes with it, the value... no it not? It's like 400 pesos a cup or something like <laughs> that. Yeah, I think here it's like 100 plus for a cup or 200 or something like that. I haven't, I don't, I don't order it, so I don't know for sure, but it's, um, but the value comes from the story. And if you add a story to it, um, it becomes more valuable. And the advantage of that is you're adding value locally instead of adding value down the line in a processing chain. So by, pa- right. by packaging it locally and processing it locally, that added value stays in the community. Now, we've been talking about, you, know, when you see pictures of you know, truckloads of tomatoes being dumped because there's no market. Um, why not make tomato sauce? You know, grow a bunch of basil and oregano, and then it's not just tomato sauce. It's, Sagada Organic Fresh Herb Ultra Special Tomato Sauce, and you price, right. it, you price it up. You make it a premium product.
1: Um, yeah.
0: and, and by I doing- think there
1: hasn't been any, any studies, actually, on how the, the name alone, Sagada, adds value to to the products that are coming from there. I mean, you know, oh. we have Sagada oranges in the markets here that don't come from Sagada. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> Most of what's branded Sagada in the Baguio, you, Sag- you have Sagada grapes in Baguio, and as far as I know, there's not one grapevine in all of Sagada. Um, right. maybe, maybe there's a, a district called Sagada in China oh. somewhere. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, the brand. Exactly. the brand itself has value, and that's something that could be exploited. To keep, again, to keep the value in the community rather than selling it outside and letting someone else add the value.
1: Exactly, because you know, Ateneo, um, the school, they did a whole study about you know the name Ateneo and how much it's worth, and it was worth something like you know fifty or hundred million a year for for the school. So now it's you know it's like trademarked and everything, and and that's something that Sagada could do, I suppose, and they could use it as a, as, as a trademark. Yeah, I'm not sure how you would enforce it in terms of, for example,
0: fruit vendors in Baguio using it. Um, but, I mean, I, we've had people, I've seen people in the market coming up and asking for those super enormous, brilliant orange oranges that are sold as Sagada oranges. And you have to explain to them that, that those don't actually grow here.
1: Right. Yeah, because your oranges are green, right? They're sort of yeah, they like tend to be sort of, uh,
0: mottled green, orange, and they're 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 not all the same size. They're they tend to be a little inconsistent in the size. But um, of course, any fruit that you eat straight from the tree is going to be better. Um, and the the export oranges from China are bred for shelf life; they're not bred for flavor, as are as are many commercial fruits and vegetables. Of course, are, are developed that way, that they, they need, obviously, shelf life, you need to be able to pick them when they're under-ripe and, and ship them, which is, of course, a real consideration when you're in a, an industrial market, but they often come out not tasting as good. But for a, a, a place like Sagada that doesn't have a volume option because of the land limitations, it makes a lot more sense to, to look for premium markets and to add value with branding and with
1: quality rather than by quality. Yeah. And in a way, I think Sagada has, has been, because of the knowledge base, I mean, you know, a lot of Sagada people are very well educated and and have contacts with, with the outside world because of the tourism industry. I think it's in a good place to be able to do that, you know, create premium markets for its products. Yeah, well, I mean, this the whole connectedness of Sagada goes way, way back to the
0: and I've actually written on this before. The, the level of education that was brought in by early missionaries um, was a bit of an anomaly in the whole colonial environment. And you had people coming out of an indigenous community, coming out of an indigenous culture, that were making the jump into, you know, professional roles in a modern society very, very quickly in a single generation. So you have a degree of confidence, not only interconnectedness, but confidence in dealing with the outside world, that um, people understand the value and they can see the value. Um,
1: yeah, definitely. I think, I think in the Cordillera, Sagada, Baguio, and parts of Ifugao are, are very, very similar in that respect. Yeah, I think
0: you're starting to see it also in Kalinga. Um, I think part of that is the tattoo tourism, which has turned Kalinga into a word with associations. In, in the lowlands, and those associations create value. Um, so you're seeing again coffee branded as Kalinga, and you're seeing sort of a, a consciousness that there is a a brand potential there. Um,
1: yeah, that's true. That's true. When, when was when was the first time you came to Sagada? What was um what what year was that 19, that eight, you come came eight, into this region?
0: I believe it was eighty two.
1: 1988 Eighty two or eighty three was 82. the first. Yeah. Wow, that must have been quite an adventure. Just getting to this region was difficult in 1982. I mean, all the roads were rough roads. Uh, bus services were still, you know, the old chicken buses. Yeah, there, the it, was, it was pretty rough.
0: Although actually, the the hardest time for transport that I can remember was uh, in the early 90s, right after the earthquake. Because the uh, the roads, big sections of road pretty much disappeared in the earthquake. And they had to be sort of patched back together again very quickly. And then after that, it took a long, long time to sort of bring it back to a, you know, passable. And then it wasn't until later 90s, early thousands, that it started being actually restored. Although, ironically, I actually think the roads are much more dangerous now than they used to be. <laughs> because of the speed... The speed and the volume of traffic. Um, that's used, true, that's right. I used to be able to bike, you know, bike your Cigar without even thinking twice about it. And now I wouldn't, you know. It's, uh, right,
1: exactly. I mean, the vans are so dangerous and even the buses now go so quickly.
0: And well, also in the old days, I, mean, I remember I used to drive that road a lot when it was rough. Um, and pretty much all the vehicles you recognize and you recognize the drivers. I mean, you didn't know their names. But you knew them by face. You go, oh, that guy drives that vehicle. And there were rules. People understood the rules. And if, if, if someone broke down, you parked by the road and lift your hood, somebody would stop within minutes to help you. Um, you everybody knew you don't pass two vehicles in a row. You, you wait your turn. Um, if, if you were going slow and people were stacked up behind you, you'd pull over and let them go. Um, so people...
1: That's still true now, right? I mean, some, people some ex- still let you pass.
0: To some extent. But you have a lot more young guys driving vans or you know commercial vehicles and the young guys always think they're immortal you know and they drive like they're immortal and sometimes they realize that they're not and usually by the time you realize that it's too late but um, but what people forget is that the danger on the road is the other drivers I mean everyone freaks out about the cliff you know you bang in so what and the cliff stays where it is don't don't drive off it you know, it, it, it doesn't move. It's not a dynamic hazard. Um, the other people on the road, um, you don't know what they're going to do.
1: You know what the cliff is going to do. It's just going to sit there.
0: You
1: know? Right, exactly. That's, that's something that's lost on a lot of people, especially the ones come from the lowlands that just, oh, it's stages, there's a cliff. It's unfamiliar. It's unfamiliar. Even myself, just from... 20 years ago I mean a lot of a lot of the driver I, I, I still got some of the rough road I mean a lot of the road going to Sagada 20 years ago was still dirt and it, it really did feel a lot safer to travel back then because the speeds were so much slower and you sort of knew the drivers knew the road very very well I mean unlike now you know Yeah. yeah
0: yeah I think and that's I mean, especially for a cyclist, where um, you know you have just people whipping around, passing on curves, and doing things that are you know potentially really dangerous. And you just need one unlucky moment, and uh, very unpleasant things can
1: happen. Like, so, what brought you to Sagada? What was the what was the? I mean, you you went in 1982 as a tourist, I'm assuming.
0: Yeah, uh, the, actually the. When I, I was in the Peace Corps in Mindanao from 79 to 81 and even then Sagada had sort of a reputation as one of those places that you should see. I've always been more a mountain person than a beach person, so it was sort of, you know, you hear about it and you know, the appeal is there, so you go and you look. And then I think it was in 83, um, I spent some time on Dinagat and I managed to pick up hepatitis A mm-hmm. and I went to Sagada to recover. And that all through my Manila period, Sagada was sort of the place you would run away to when, you know, lifestyle caught up with you or something like that. Right. <laughs> um, so it it became sort of the refuge. And the first time I actually lived here continuously for an extended period was um, mid-90s. And that's when I developed asthma living in Manila. Um, We actually owned a house at that time, and the doctor just said, You got to get out of here. (laughs) This this city's going to kill you. And we had visited Sagata just as tourists again and realized that that the asthma pretty much shut off in the mountains. So, plus, it was a place where at that time you could live on the rent from the house. We rented out the house in Manila and moved to Sagata for three years at that time. So, you know, that, that, that was the first time we sort of settled in. And my two older kids.
1: Okay, it's again. It was quite a different place back then, wasn't it? I mean, I was there in the late nineties, and and it's so different from what it is now. Visually, of
0: course, uh, yeah. Culturally, less so. Um, a lot of the culture is still there. It's just hidden under more concrete. Um, but I mean. Right. Yeah. In terms of the yeah the just the number and size of buildings things like that um, the difference is pretty striking. I, mean, I was I was really sort of sad when they expanded the road from uh, from town down through Macam because that that road always sort of felt like a gateway. Just like the, the little narrow road with the trees hanging over it. And there were always tons of fireflies there at night, and then of course when they came in and turned it into a four
1: lane thing. Oh, so right. Good. That's that, that's well. That's progress, and I mean, the the tourist boom of Sagada wouldn't be without the, those concrete roads that lead to it now. Yeah, and and of course the the roads also mean easier shipping
0: out for vegetables, you know, and things like cell phones have made a big difference to vegetable dealers. I mean, you can get on the phone and find out what the offering price is in Solano, what the offering price is in Trinidad, what the offering price is in a few different places, and then decide where you're going to ship your goods. Um, you couldn't do that once upon a time. You know, it's, um, you know, things like that, the better roads and the better communications do make a difference to a lot of businesses.
1: No, for sure. I mean, that, that's something that actually changed Benguet farmers quite a bit. I mean, it changed their wealth status quite significantly. Just the entry of cell phones and being able to check what the prices were allowed them some measure of control over the market in a way. Yeah, or, yeah, much
0: more, maybe not control, but much more market
1: power than it once had. Yeah. Right. And after the, like you you said that you were in the Peace Corps, and when you moved to the Philippines, did you just stay here after the Peace Corps work, or did you? No, I went back. I, I
0: actually went back and got a job in New York City, coming out of a village in Mindanao, um, which. Oh, really? It's, it's actually cultural adjustment and culture shock is sometimes more dramatic going the other direction. Because when you, come, when you go to a foreign place, everything is different, but you expect it to be different. You're ready for it to be different. You want it to be different. That's why you go. Uh, when you go back, you expect everything to be the same. And everything is the same, but you're different. So everything feels different. And there's this difference. that You can't put a finger on it because it's you. <laughs> and you're seeing it through a different set of eyes and a different uh, paradigm. So you keep looking for that, that thing that causes it to be different. And at first you can't see it because it's, uh, it's behind your eyes, not in front of them. And I, I got to a point after about eight months in New York City where I had this feeling like if I don't get out of here right now, I never will. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this treadmill, and so I decided to leave, and that might have been a bad decision or a good one, I really don't know, because there's no way to know how it would have gone otherwise, but um,
1: it's, you know, that's where I am now. And you've now lived in the Philippines for how many years now, since since you moved back? Well,
0: there's been some in and out and back and forth, but most of the time since 1979, I'm not sure I can count that high, but it's a lot of years. Wow!
1: Wow. Oh, that's. I mean, I was talking to Jim um, a few weeks ago, and he, 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 you, and him actually have a very similar sort of experience. He came in through the army as a GI and eventually stayed and worked in Asia, obviously over the over the the last 40 years or so, and fell in love with the Philippines. So. <laughs>
0: yeah it's, I mean it's, it's an interesting place in the sense that you know, even as a, whether from a, as a tourist or an expat, uh, it reflects so much what you bring into it. Um, you know, so in some places, like in, I used to refer to Thailand as industrial tourism, where every tourist gets exactly the same experience, regardless of their frame of mind coming in. Um, here it's not that way at all. It's what you get is what you put in, you know and, so that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on, on what you bring with you. But, I mean, looking at, at say, Jim, I mean, he came here as a, out of the military and did quite well for himself. Um, a lot of people who do that, I, mean, when I lived in Subic for a while, you had a lot of guys coming in out of the military who would come in, and they're physically fit. They're all trim and ready, and they, they go straight out and just start drinking nonstop. And within three years, they're, they're falling apart physically. Um, because when you're in the Navy, you come into port, you know, once every couple of months and for a few days, you know, that's in your mind, is the most fun you ever had, the booze and the girls and the the right. nonstop party. But when you're doing that three days out of every two months, you can sustain it. But when you're all of a sudden, you're 45 or 50 and you're doing it every day, uh, doesn't quite work the same way. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and you see all these guys after... After a few years, just some, they living on the same bar stool day after day with the spider webs growing off from the yellow eyes and the guts sagging down to sagging down to their knees and everything else. And so, yeah, not a way,
1: not a way I'd want to go. But you know, to each their own. Right, right. But it's very interesting way to put it. And I mean, you've been in the Philippines for so long. You've seen it go through you know so many different changes. I remember you posted a few a few years ago, this this set of photos from EDSA. And can you describe that? How was it being, you know, a young foreigner experiencing EDSA as as a, as a you know, a young white guy?
0: Well, that was, it was an interesting time, obviously. Um, and I think the, when people, people look at the event, and people forget what led up to the event. And the, the, there was this just huge economic collapse from like 83 to 86 and there was this sense that something's going to happen and this can't be sustained but nobody knew what it was. I mean, nobody, could, nobody anticipated it I mean, so you have more and more discontent you have more and more anger you have more and more fear you have you know, the NPAs growing in the hinterlands there's rallies all the time in the city but no one saw a way out. Nobody really saw that there's, you know, the, the politics were weird. There was the opposition was sort of fragmented until sort of Cory emerged as a you know as some, somebody that people could get behind, which hadn't been there before. But even then, you know, what, what's going to happen? You know, how does this resolve? Nobody had a clue how it was going to resolve. And I was living at a friend's house on Endomingo. Uh, just off Rora Bova, almost the corner of Endomingo and Aurora, which is, of course, literally walking distance from the focal point of the whole thing. And you know, My memory at the start of it was you know, he came driving in, his old, old car, beeping the horns, and said, turn the radio on, turn the radio on. I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, uh, you know, and Relay's locked up in Kramé and spilling the beans on everything. I used to have a cassette tape that I recorded off the radio in that, in that first moment where... JPE was spilling beans and obviously expecting to be stomped on at any moment. And everybody was sort of like, I, I do not agree that Cardinal Sin called the people and they all, and people went. I think that's absolute historical bullshit. I think that's not at all what happened. Um, yeah, he said it, but lots of other people said it too. Zucchino said it before he did. And that crowd out on the street wasn't there because Cardinal Sin gave him permission. They didn't need anyone's permission. I I felt like all of a sudden, everybody was like, this is it. This is what's going to happen, and it's happening right now. And we don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to be part of it one way or the other. And so everyone just sort of came out because there was this huge pent-up year of more than a year of uncertainty and not knowing, and knowing something is about to happen, something's going to blow. It's it's right on the edge, but nobody knew what it was going to be and all of a sudden it was like this is it whatever is happening this is it it's happening right now and people just wanted to, to go out and be part of it or, or that's how i saw it from you know at street level at that time and i was also you know physically present when the first stopping of the tanks happened and trying to cross Ortega's Avenue that was also rather dramatically misrepresented by history. <laughs> and, um, and again, nobody knew what was going to happen. You know, there was no mm-hmm. certainty that they were going to stop. You know, it, was, <laughs> it was very much up in the air. And once they did, there was actually a, a really tiny, brief moment of confrontation that, to me, set the tone for the whole thing. And I saw it. I wasn't in it, but I was a few, a few meters away from it. Um, you know how the corner of Edson Ortigas was in those days. There was uh, where Robinson's Galleria now stands. There was a huge empty lot with a wall around it. And at first...
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's still an empty lot across.
0: <laughs> but there was uh, a little standoff. You could look up the road. The, 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 the junction, the Edson Ortigas Junction, was really barricaded with a bunch of buses. And you could look up the road, and there were the armored vehicles. I know they're not technically tanks, but everyone called them that. And they sat there a while, and we stood there a while, and everyone looked at each other. And they broke down the wall and started cutting across the lot. And it was pretty obvious that they were going to break down the other wall and go in through Corinthian um, and just get around the barricade. So people started running. And people were running a little slowly because, again, nobody was sure what was going to happen or what they were going to do. And when the first vehicle broke through the wall, started crossing with two guys, a few guys jumped in front of it, and it was maybe three or four guys. I mean, nothing more. Not a, not a crowd. It wasn't any million people. It was literally three or four guys. Um, just ordinary, just regular people. Nobody that you would seem, to call distinguished in any way. And the, the guy, the driver, you know, sort of dropped the clutch and roared the engine, and they didn't move, and he stopped. And he says, if he hadn't stopped... Um, everything would have been different, because they would have rolled right through. But he did. And then when the, when the actual foot soldiers, when the Marines started coming through after them, by that time, there were more people. There were you know, because when, when the guy stopped, more people jumped in. You know, as soon as he stopped, you know, more people started piling up in front. And when the soldiers came through, you could see these guys on their faces. They... They were not at all happy with this. They, didn't, they weren't comfortable. They didn't want to shoot anybody. That was really obvious. I mean, they weren't threatening. They were sort of like, you know, what's going on here? I don't know what they were told they were going into, but it clearly wasn't that. And so they just stopped. Um, they, did, they didn't really want to be there. It was really obvious from looking at them. I mean, you didn't have a real sense of threat or aggression out of these guys. And... Mm-hmm. So the whole thing just sort of stopped, and then there was this whole revelation. Okay, you know, we can do this. We can stop people that they want. They're not actually going to shoot us, and of course they did later. But that was a different story. Um, But that set the tone for the whole thing. And of course, those images spread worldwide. Um, The media came came, kind of came in late and saw it all late, but they did the, the story did come out. And once that sort of became famous, became the face of the whole event, then everyone realized that it was possible. And, and then you had the whole and thing... That around.
1: was the turning point there.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, across the military spectrum, most of the... I remember hearing a, a dialogue that had come out of... of the, the, the military people in Camp pinpin were being ordered to come in and support the government, and they were like, um, we don't have any gasoline. Everyone's out on patrol. And, and you just knew they, just, they were waiting. They wanted to see how it was going to work out. Nobody wanted to take sides. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I think from top to bottom, there was a sense that this was, it was done one way or the other, that um, something new was going to happen. And nobody, again, there was complete uncertainty about what it was going to be. But
1: and now 30 years on from you know from EDSA and you know I was looking through that those those photos that you posted and there seems to be so much polarization and so much sort of I don't know if it's trolls or it's just there's so much people so many people who don't even believe all of these things happened and I mean, just looking look through the comment sections of your, of your album, which has about 2,000 shares at yeah. this point.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, very rarely post things publicly, but I wanted to stick that out there largely, again, because people say it didn't happen. And uh, while well, you can debate infinitely what the impact was or you know, how it worked out afterward, but there's no question that it did happen. I <laughs> mean, that, that's one thing that um, really is beyond question, it's, these events did occur. And I do think there was a lot of sort of irrational expectation that people thought everything was going to be better. Uh, dogs are happy in the background. But, uh, and in retrospect, I think uh, over the, the subsequent years, there was a lot of sort of frustration and anger with uh, the quarry government, which in retrospect, I think, was largely misplaced because things were such a mess you know, that I don't think anybody could have come in and, and just made that right, that the institutional degradation, the, the years and years and years of neglect and of suppressing political competition at every level, uh, a whole generation of people that could have been leaders were either co-opted or driven into exile or driven out of the political world or just killed or suppressed or driven underground. So where do you even start? Where would you even start? Um, countries bankrupt, no money, overwhelmingly in debt, monumentally in debt. Um, a lot of people say that, oh, you know, she should have refused to pay. You know, what happens when you refuse to pay? You can't order any more oil. The lights go out. Car's stop <laughs> You know, it's, it's, not, it's easy to say it, but it's hard to do it. And when you'd have to negotiate with people, okay, maybe that crowd of a million people put you in office, but you can't bring them into the negotiating room. You know, those people all went home. Of course. Those people went home and expected everything to be better. You know, and then all of a sudden, you have these people sitting on the chair with, uh, you know, the bank account is empty. Things have to be bought. The economy has to be revived. There has to be money spent. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of conf- conflicted and competing interests. Plus, there were a lot of people from the old regime who jumped ship at the last minute, who were suddenly being treated as heroes for jumping ship, and they had their own interest in the picture as well. So it was a very, very sloppy time. And then, of course, you went through all the the coup attempts and associated disorder, and it was was just a hard time for everybody. But realistically, um, coming out of an extended period of deteriorating dictatorship is a really hard thing to do. And we've seen that over and over again all over the world where countries emerge out of dictatorships. Very often they collapse uh, because...
1: It's true because there's just nothing there to build on anymore.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, the, your, the economy is totally distorted. The, uh, it's been dominated by these cronies and these insiders for so long and then when they leave, there's this... I remember the, the perception of corruption... Kind of grew because the corruption became disorganized. That in the Marcos years, the corruption was systematic. Everybody knew who you had to pay and how much how much you had to pay him, and you paid. It was a monopoly. Yeah. So and, and it was reasonably efficient. And then all of a sudden, when you took that away, everyone was scrambling for the bits and pieces. And it certainly did not go away. It just became more disorganized. Plus, of course, it was all in the media, and I think the perceptions have been really shaped by that because it was. You know, in the Marcos years, there were what three newspapers, and they all printed the same stories, word for word, under different bylines. And there, you had this impression that everything was placid and that everything was okay. And of course, if you were paying attention, you realized that things weren't okay and everything wasn't placid. But even if you were paying attention, suddenly seeing it on the news every day was a bit of a shock. You know, it's all right there in your face the insurgency and the encounters and the fighting, of course, none of that was ever reported before. Um, crime just wasn't reported. So it was as if, it, unless it was actually happening to you, it didn't, you didn't notice it. So it was pretty easy, especially if you weren't poor or if you weren't out where things were actually happening, just to ignore it, pretend it wasn't there. And once the media was free... And that's the
1: case. Right. Go ahead. That's the case sort of here where, where we are in, in Baguio and where you are in Sagada. There's, there's a whole, like, a big bulk of society that actually doesn't believe the whole Edsa narrative and, and believes that, I mean, we lived here when I was a kid. We lived here without really experiencing martial law in that way, I suppose.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> I think... People have sort of forgotten about the extent of the economic dislocation and how severe it actually was. I mean, I, I've heard people saying that um, but there was no traffic, there was no traffic under martial Law. Nobody could afford a car. I mean, When, when I first came That's here, right. came here owning, owning a car, owning your own vehicle
1: meant you were rich, because only rich people had a private vehicle. Just, I, just didn't I remember that time, I mean, just like after the, in the 1980s, if you had a car, you, you were wealthy. And I, I remember
0: Kazon Avenue as being 95% jeepneys and 5% private vehicles. And it's the other way around. Now you know, you go down of Kezon Avenue and it's, it's 95% private vehicles and then it's just the occasional jeepney.
1: That's exactly right. Um,
0: and and, that's what, and you know, everyone gave a keynote t- tons of flack for saying that the traffic was a consequence of economic development, but he's right. Um, well, what I think people... The, I remember a discussion that was sort of common among sort of economic circles and back in the GMA period and even before of the need for what was called financial inclusion, which is, essentially meant access to credit. Again, there was a time when only a rich person had a credit card. These things just didn 't exist. Uh, you couldn't get a loan, or if you did, it was at just staggering interest rates, and that of course meant people couldn 't buy things like cars. And when the idea that economists had was that when financial inclusion or the access to credit would mean people would go out and start businesses, um, what actually happened was people went out and bought cars. <laughs> and when you look at Manila's public transportation or pathetic excuse, therefore, it kind of makes sense that when public transportation is inaccessible, miserable, uncomfortable, unsafe, people will do pretty much anything to avoid it. And plus you have the this, this status symbol idea that when you're sitting in your car, you're a real person. You, know, you can't be pushed around. It's like an announcement that you're not poor. And of course, in a country where being poor can mean um, vulnerability in many ways, um, having a sign that you're not poor is kind of important. So, you have all these things colliding and creating this, you know, people will do almost anything, you know, to to have that car. And that makes the whole idea of trying to promote non car transportation quite difficult. Because it's not just about transportation, it's about self image.
1: That makes sense. I mean, a lot of my friends, a lot of my peers in high school, and it's really like, having a car was a status symbol. Having a car would get you the girls and, you know, I mean, it gets you places even in college. That was the case. And, and I think moving away from that mentality is also as essential as building, you know, proper public transportation. Yeah, it's,
0: and it it's different in different places. I mean, in the U S for example, uh, New York City is not really a car-oriented city. Even quite wealthy people in New York don't have a car because a parking space can cost you as much as an apartment, and apartments are expensive in New York. Um, so you have... It's, it's more of a public transportation mentality, whereas on the West Coast, of course, it's, it's very much car-oriented, um, which I think actually has something to do with the outbreak of uh, the COVID-19 virus in New York, is that... Um, for all the many virtues of public transportation, it's not exactly an ideal thing to be dependent on during so an outbreak of a respiratory virus, um, because people pack together.
1: And right. As opposed to the West Coast, where people sort of drive on their own and yeah. they're naturally socially distant. Yeah, it, it does
0: impose a degree of social distancing.
1: That, that I
0: used to refer to as a metal exoskeleton. <laughs> people, people move around in their little metallic exoskeleton.
1: And I also saw, like, after in the 80s, were you in a movie? or A few, or yeah. It, I actually. You were in some movies, right? I actually worked
0: as a script editor and script writer for a while. And I also would appear in movies mainly when they needed someone who would a little bit of dialogue, <laughs> because <laughs> I can could, I could remember the words. Uh, at that time, was, there was a, a huge vogue for sort of Vietnam War movies for a while, so we did a lot of those, and then there were sort of these Mad Max science fiction type of movies that were popular, and I remember as, as a writer, when we got into the... The vogue for kickboxing movies. I knew it was time to get out. <laughs> 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 were you in uh,
1: Apocalypse Now? Was it one of those movies no, you were no. in, or I was? Apocalypse. I, oh, in Apocalypse Now. Right. I
0: was after that. Um, that was before my time. Uh, many of my friends right. were in it. I was. I was involved with Platoon,
1: not with Apocalypse Now. Oh, Platoon. Okay. Yeah. And, and that was shot in. Was it Aurora? Or, or uh, no, it was...
0: Apocalypse Now was shot partially in Aurora, partially in Laguna. The oh, okay. platoon places. was
1: in Ilogos, right?
0: The platoon was Cavite and Laguna.
1: Okay. Um, a lot of
0: it was shot in Maragondon, Cavite, near Puerto Azul. Um, a lot of it was shot in, uh, in uh, Los Baños.
1: Oh, okay. And how was that? Like shooting on a Hollywood movie? Here in the Philippines,
0: uh, I mean, at the time in 1980s. So was sort of a unique case because, well, first of all, this was shot right after the whole EDSA thing. And that created a lot of confusion because all the deals they had made for military equipment, for extras, had to be canceled because there were new people involved. Um, so everybody they talked to was no longer there. And that kind of complicated matters. It was also, they were trying to shoot... Uh, High end movie on a low end budget, and that created some issues. <laughs> but, and right. uh, some of the people involved were maybe a little bit uh, difficult or a little bit not ready for the realities
1: of, you know, of the Philippines. <laughs> of, of, I
0: remember mean, we were, we actually, during the the earlier Maragondon section of the shoot, we stayed in Puerto Azul, which had been sequestered. And the management of the place was a bit absent. And one, I think it was the first day of the principal photography. You know, the actors all went into the restaurant and ordered breakfast. And an hour and a half later, they were still waiting. And, you know, people are on the set calling on the radios, freaking out and... You know, where are the actors? Where's the cast? We, can't we, you know, they didn't want to leave because they hadn't had breakfast because the kitchen had no staff. And, and, the, and the one of the producers, Alex Ho, was a fellow from New York, was like, can't we get order out from Dunkin' Donuts or something? <laughs> like, uh, no. <laughs> and, and the solution was we finally had to throw all the actors into cars, drag him to the set, and we had to have them pack up all the food in the kitchen and
1: bring it out. You know. and- this is like the actors were Willem Dafoe. Uh, was it a couple of big Sheen. names? That's right, Charlie Sheen, uh,
0: yeah? Johnny Depp. But he wasn't. He wasn't Johnny Depp yet. He was just uh, a kid, basically. Um, and Charlie Sheen was not at all what we know him as later. He was, um, right. Willem Dafoe. I, I mean, of course, I was. Just, I was around these guys, but in, a, in my role, I was a what was called a production assistant, or what we called it was chief assistant to the assistant chief. <laughs> mm. um, the, the, the second AD, the guy who was second AD, he kind of had problems and ended up going back to the US pretty quickly. So a friend of mine and I, we were sort of the, the second AD's stand-ins and mm. they thought that because I spoke Tagalog and my friend who was in the same role spoke Tagalog, they thought they were having communication problems because of language. Uh, they weren't, so the communication problems, were that they weren't listening. Um, you know, when you deal with a, a Filipino crew, first of all, the crew guys were quite experienced. They knew what they were doing. But all of a sudden, you had these quite hysterical Hollywood and New York guys who shout a lot and don't stop to listen. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean early on, we had a, there was a big issue. There were never enough vehicles. People couldn't move around and they were convinced that the drivers were slacking or they were going off somewhere. And so I was imperiously ordered to sort this out. So I went and talked to Monc Thermo, the transport captain, and I him, what's going on? And he's like, well, they've promised cars to 27 people and they only have 14 cars. And I was like, oh, that's simple. And I went back and I told him that. And they were like, oh, why didn't they tell you? I said, they did tell you that. But you know, you're not used to the style here, which is a little calmer, a little quieter, a little less aggressive. Um, you're right, waiting for right. someone to jump up and shout in your face, you fucking idiot, you don't have enough cars, which is what an American would do. And <laughs> here we'd be like, uh, sir, you have a discrepancy between the number of vehicles available and the number of people. And, and the guy's not listening, and he's taking off. And it wasn't a language problem at all, it was just a communication style issue. And so I ended up. You end up being a translator, not a linguistic translator. Translation. <laughs> so yeah, and that was that was it was just an interesting shoot, all in all.
1: Um, and after that, like. Um Moving to Sagada, you set up a river rafting business, I mean, maybe, was it, what's it now, 10 years? Uh, That came up much later.
0: We we started the rafting in 2008, 2009, more or less. Uh, I was doing a lot of kayaking then, and largely... It turned. It started because I wanted to get out on the river more, it's, it's not a sport you can do by yourself. So we needed other people into river sports. And it's right.
1: I still. I still need to come over. I, I was about to come over before this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yep, we were actually talking about it, and we're like, "Well, maybe in a, in a couple of weeks." And I was like, "Well, that didn't quite go that way." But um, exactly. yeah. But uh, there's actually a, there's, there's some guys in Baltalk that want to pick up kayaks, and that's um. Actually one, you know Roland, right?
1: Roland, yeah, Roland one. Uh,
0: Roland, we, we, we actually paddled a bit together. He learned to roll and then we sort of fell out of that at, at one point. Uh, we started doing the, uh, the canyoning more because the, it's just closer to Sagada. Um, logistically, commercial rafting is a little tough here because the season's quite short compared to Kalinga. And training guides is quite demanding because we don't have easy sections. Uh, it 's not like Cayanandoro where you have that lower section where you could literally learn to guide it in a few weeks, you know basically you 're pointing the raft down the middle of the river and saying paddle forward um, here everything is technical, everything is challenging, and you 're taking guys that have never been on white water and throwing them straight into technical class four, um, which is fairly fairly aggressive water i mean if I mean, one of our guide trainers that came over from, from California mentioned to me that we were, we, we, the main run we do is from the Taliban Chico confluence uh, just below Tukulkan down to uh, Annabelle. And he was saying that in the, in the U.S., rafting companies would put their good guides on this section. You know, this would be the section where the experienced guys work. So bring people to, up to that level and, of course, there, when people start out as raft guys, they've already paddled a bit. They're already kayakers. They're already river people, so you're starting people from, you know, from ground zero. Uh, fortunately, the, the local guys tend to be pretty good. They're, they're physically very strong. Uh, they adjust well. It is a little, you get guys, half of your group will drop out in the first week, always. Uh, White water is a different environment for a lot of people, and because the guys here tend to be quite strong physically, they're used to being in control, they're used to sort of being dominant, and the first time you fall into a rapid, you realize that control is really not part of the picture. (laughs) And 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 eventually you realize also that you can ride this out, and that it's predictable, and that it's not as scary as it seems, but the first time you're in it, and you're feeling like a matchstick in a toilet bowl, um, it's a little terrifying (laughs) and some people, I remember one guy, the first time he fell in and he went home and like had a little ritual to like cleanse himself and never went back. (laughs) It was just a level of, uh, it's a type of fear that people haven't experienced. But you know,
1: we have so many rivers here in the Cordillera. I'm I'm just wondering and you know, I, I just got my kayak last year and I've not, not been able to get it on the river, but, but I'm wondering why it hasn't really taken off as a sport, given that we have rivers left and right here it's, in the mountains.
0: It's very seasonal. Um, it's, people tell me that it's the cost, but it's, um, it's no more expensive than mountain bikes. Um,
1: oh, yeah. I mean, my, my kayak is cheaper than my mountain bike. So. Oh,
0: yeah, and then, of course, there's, there's a bunch of sort of gear associated with it. But also, you can get on a bike and start to ride. And even with nobody teaching you anything and figure it out, you can't do that with a kayak. Um, like the first step to whitewater kayaking is to roll. And until you can roll, you're really constrained in what you can do. And to teach yourself to roll would be almost impossible, um, even watching videos and things. It's, um, you watch a thousand videos and you hear it described a thousand times, and then all of a sudden. You're upside down in the water with your legs confined, and a very limited range of movement, and the, the panic level becomes extreme. Um, you go through this a thousand times with people, and the first time they actually turn upside down, um, they don't go into the setup position. They go, you actually roll. You the first time you flip, you're in the setup position, and then all of a sudden the paddle's flapping all over the place, and they're kicking their way out of the boat because you're upside down and you're confined and you're underwater. And people, it's a, it's a very viscerally uncomfortable place to be. Um, and the role itself is an extremely counterintuitive movement. Um, what, you're, what you want to do, your instinct says, get your head out of the water. Because that's where the air is. You know, obviously, air is kind of important. But in a, a proper role, the head is the last thing to come out of the water. And you can't do it with strength. It's, if you try to muscle your way up, you'll, it'll, it won't work. You'll, you fail every time. It's mm. like, trying to, like trying to do push-ups in water. It just doesn't mm. happen that way. So, because there haven't been very many people around who can, who can teach it. Um, there haven't been very many people who
1: tried it. Right, right. But you've, you've kayaked here. Where, what rivers have you gone down on um, here in the region? Uh,
0: well, ninety. 90% of the paddling we've done here is on the Chico. And we used to do more exploring, um, but then we got in this pattern where you know, I would be in Sagada and people would come to visit. You know, when people come to visit, you tend to go to the, the closest and most accessible river, which is always Chico. Um, we, did, we used to run a river in Ifugao, which is the, basically from Uha, um, the, the bridge from Wagoing going to Hapao you'd go up to Hop-Out and paddle down to the bridge, which is now no longer possible mm-hmm. because the exit point has sort of slid away. Um, that's a quite technically challenging little bit of water that is definitely not beginner friendly. Um, mm. There was a, a British group that was here a few years ago that paddled quite a bit of stuff that I hadn't been familiar with. I used to always go to the Agno, oh. in, uh, the Agno above uh, Ambuklau. And oh, okay. But, but I was never able to get it at the right volume. Uh, the thing with the Agno is that... It, it's it's when, quite low, it's it, when it it's rains, quite low it, river. When it rains, it shoots up, but it drops down very, very quickly. So you have to really catch it at the right level. Um, so I was never able to catch it at the right level when there were other paddlers around, because you were constrained by that, too. Because I, Again, it's not something you do your, on your own. Um, and I'm not... A real superstar paddler by any means, I'm not nearly as good as like these the British kids that came over. So you want to, you know, you tend to be a little cautious because you don't want to bite off more than you can chew. So and they, they ran uh, portions of the Amurayan, which looked really beautiful. I saw that video. Yeah, um, it looks like really nice water. Um, it looks like a section lower down that um, that's quite inaccessible and would probably be quite challenging, maybe unrunnable. Um, There are some sections, the rivers here tend to have slot canyons, which tend to be very narrow, very steep places, which you tend to avoid in a kayak, because once you enter the slot canyon, you're not able to emerge anyway but um, down the river. So if there's a feature on the river that you can't run, and you can't walk out, you're in a bit of a problem. Like the section of the Chico that's... um, just above Bugnai. Are you familiar with that?
1: Um, yes, I know this. Uh, right above Bugnai, there's like a slot canyon that goes all the way to Betwagan, right? Uh, no, it's, it's, it starts... Uh, we used to
0: paddle from Betuagan down to the, the start of the canyon. Um, it's, only, it's only... it's not long. Um, there's one... There's a pinched out section uh, a bit below Betuagan that is runnable. It's a, it's a challenging rapid, but it's runnable. You come out into the canyon, there's no more rapid. But then you go into what we call the Canyon of Death, and some of the best paddlers in the world have paddled into that canyon and then hiked out. They, they, you get to a certain point, they scouted it and said, no, we're not going in there. <laughs> it's just, you can't see it. Uh, you can't see it. There's no no way to get out once you're in, and no one's really quite sure what's in there. Um, we know that there's an a almost 90-degree bend with sort of rock shelves that overlap because... Uh, a uh, guy that used to paddle down in Kalinga, came went up into it from the bottom during low water, very low water, and was able to look at it. But it's dark inside. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how tight it is. It's dark, <laughs> so it's um,
1: yeah.
0: it's essentially like pad- like paddling into a cave. And I would-
1: remember seeing it from above. Right? It's like a, it's it's a really narrow area.
0: Uh, the entry portion, the entry portion has been run. It's very difficult, but it's runnable. But there is sort of one crux section that is, you can't scout it, you can't see it, you couldn't get out of it. So it's um, people just don't go in. Um, and frankly, it would be really stupid to go in there in the boat. <laughs> I mean, right, basically, right, right. All, all all you could do if um, if you got in trouble in there would be to get out of the boat curl up in a little ball and hope that whatever god you pray to is in a good mood that day <laughs> and, and the river's going to spit you out the it other spits end. You out the other <laughs> side. It out <it> might. It <laughs> might. But then again, it might not. So, it's, uh, And good kayakers tend to actually be pretty careful. I mean, you see things on YouTube of, you know, huge waterfalls, and you know, monumentally difficult rapids. What you don't see is that these guys scout those things very carefully for a long, long time, and they look for just the right water level, and they know exactly how they're planning to get through. And some things that look very difficult aren't, and some things that look kind of innocent can actually be really dangerous. Um, so they know what they're doing. Um, it's not a sport for people who you know, have big balls and small skills. <laughs> we used to refer to that as the we used to refer to the balls to skills ratio in mountain biking. Whereas, you know, as long as they stay more or less equal, you're okay. Um, if your balls outrun your skills, then
1: you, you make orthopedic doctors happy. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and and mountain biking, even in Sagada, though, it, it's, I mean, it's always been a big thing, mountain biking in Sagada, but I feel it hasn't really grown as much as, it should have. Is it? Is, so it's is that shrunk.
0: like a? It's shrunk. If anything, uh, we used to get lots of groups coming up from Manila uh, to ride, and now there are very few. Um, we do see guys on bikes once in a while. Partly because I think is, you know, we, there was a time. Remember uh, PMTB and what was the other forum that was big?
1: That's right, uh, Filmofo. Filmofo, and
0: Filmofo PMTB. And PMTB. Uh, I used to be active on those forums, so everybody knew that when you're gonna, if you want to ride in Sagata, you go see this guy. So they would get in touch with me first, and we'd, and we'd go out and ride. And then the forums kind of deteriorated into a, you know, the usual social media crap. And so I kind of dropped out of it. And now the riders that come up don't know who's here. Uh, there used to be more riders here but people have left. You know, A lot of the younger guys on road are no longer around or no longer riding. Uh, my son is now, he was sort of the, the most skilled rider here for a long time now. He's not here anymore, so uh, we still... Well, he's one of the most skilled riders in the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, and, uh, Plus, I don't maintain so many of the trails anymore. Um, I maintain a few of them but you know, with one guy... Uh, working on trails can be a little rugged. Yeah, yeah. with four or five guys, you, you go out. And, and you do know, Sagada.
1: It. Yeah, go ahead. Right. And, and Sagada, you know, you were saying that a lot of people leave. Sagada's always been this place that's sort of transitory for a lot of people. You know, like artists, mountain bikers, adventure people. They they tend to come to Sagada for a few years, live there and then disappear somewhere else. I mean, it, that's sort of a story of Sagada, isn't it?
0: Yeah, they've always been the transients that, that come through, and then a few of us actually stay. But, I mean, there weren't that many of them that I, th- I can think of as bikers. There was one guy who was here maybe less than a year who used to ride. But you know, there, was, uh, yeah, there used to be a group from Sabak that would come up, couple times a year. There was a group from Solano that would come a few times a year. And there'd be a constant stream of, you know, small groups, you know, right. two, two carloads of guys that would come up and, and ride. And so we used to be out fairly regularly. And there were enough local guys who rode that you could put together a little group and go out and clear trail. Uh, and you, know, you go out for a trail maintenance day with four or five guys, it's, it's a party. You know, it's a good time. You go out and do it yourself at the end of the day you've done 300 meters and you're tired sore you you don't really want to go back and do the rest of it
1: right right yeah but I I was I was thinking like over the years I've been coming to Sagada maybe 20 years now and like over the years there's always been that one person I would see like for instance Jijit he lived in Sagada for a while uh paul you know paul villegas a bunch of mountaineers yeah, yeah. they would live yeah. in sagada and a bunch of artists they would stay and then or or foreigners you know like yourself or a who have found a home there there's also been foreigners who have been transitory and, and it's really part of the whole sagada mystique in a way you know that that uh, People come looking for something. Some people find it, like yourself or Aklay, and some people don't find it, and people they run. tend to they tend to go somewhere else. You know. move yeah. on.
0: Well, part of that is economic. It's you know, it's it's a great place for an artist to stay and work for a while, uh, but to stay permanently, you don't have much of an access to to a market for your work. So it's um, yeah, for the artist. It was always a place where when someone needs to get away. And just focus on work for six months or a year. It was, a, it was an ideal place for that sort of thing. Some would stay longer. Um, some would settle for quite a while. Um, I mean, the Gozman was here for a long time. Um, a few others, but I think maybe less so now. Um, you had a certain number of Europeans who would just come for the weed, stay six months or a year, run out of money, <laughs>
1: blow my yes. nose. <laughs> right so that's like a, that's something also that sort of I would say has gone down a bit you know the weed in Sagada it, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent as it used to be 20 years ago 20 years ago you'd just be walking on the street and someone would offer you weed but yeah. it doesn't seem to be as common I think
0: part of that was that you know for yeah, you know, of course all this is illegal we probably should talk about it but it's always deep in the past, you know, and for a while, you know, they stopped growing it here a long time ago. It was just a little too public. But when the guys up in uh, that other province, you know, nearby started growing it, the Sagata guys were the middlemen. You know, they, they still had the market mm. connections. They would go up there and buy it and bring it down. And that, those deals created some bad blood because something goes wrong. Someone doesn't get paid. You know, there's hostility and things go wrong because of course... That kind of business, you don't have courts or legal recourse, so things can get difficult. And then eventually, the the guys from the other places where were growing started making their own connections. You know, they started going straight to the market, and it's, mm-hmm. they cut the, the middlemen got cut out. So I think it wasn't so much a conscious decision to walk away from the business. Is that a lot of these guys who were who were the middlemen simply no longer had business anymore? You know, they couldn't go up. To some other place and buy something really, really cheap, and go somewhere else and buy, sell it for a lot of money because the person who was drawing it was taking it was going to carry it on his own.
1: And right, that's right, and that's one of the changes that you know the Sagada has gone through in the in in the last ten years or so that tourism has really gone up. I mean, now tourism is more Filipino than foreign. Many years yeah, you don't have sort of you've been, seen people, yeah hippie
0: <laughs> you know, It used to be sort yeah. of uh, a back, the backpack or hippie. Yeah, yeah. So that, that changed. Um, and you know, things changed with it. Uh, which some people might say is a good thing, but um some people might not. Although we still have people who arrive and sort of wandering around vaguely looking for it. But we used yeah, to have. It's,
1: it's, it's something like, I remember coming to Sagada 20 years ago and having the old people singing Bob Marley and reggae songs, like very, very different from the rest of the Cordillera where everyone's listening to country music, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And then you come to Sagada, this little village in the middle of nowhere, and then suddenly it's like Bob Marley, the doors. It, it's really a big, stark contrast to the rest yeah. of the region. Yeah, the,
0: the Bob Marley Legend album was like the only cassette in a lot of places for a long, long time.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, to, to end this, you know, this whole conversation, I think you've, you've lived in Sagada long enough that you've seen a change, you've seen a lot of things stay the same. And like, what are your thoughts on how Sagada has sort of evolved through the entire time that you've you've lived there?
0: Well, I sometimes miss the old Sagada, but at the same time, you have to recognize that that old Sagada did give a lot of opportunities to a lot of people, and that a lot of people had to leave to find work or to make any money. And you can't really blame them for wanting to change that. And... Culturally, you know, things change, but all living cultures change. If a culture isn't changing, it's dead. And that's a natural process. And I think what's important is that the, the changes are still largely locally controlled. That it's not outsiders coming in and imposing change. People are sort of adopting change as they see fit. And of course, that creates all kinds of tension and disagreement and people talk it out, people get upset over things, but it's mostly internal. It's people working things out among themselves. I mean, you don't have, you know, Manila people coming in and buying up businesses and giving orders. So as long as the cultural change is locally directed and uh, whose place is it to say anything about it? It's their culture. Let them change it as they will and some aspects of it you may miss, and some aspects of it people here may miss. You, you, you hear a lot of people sort of reminiscing about, back in the old days, things were more like, just like that, but the old days aren't here anymore, and things will change. And to me, what's important is the change is locally driven, and it's driven by the community itself. And at the end of the day, it's their choice, really. I mean, they may not all agree, of course, when have people ever agreed on anything. You know? <laughs> so right. I mean, anyone who thinks that there's unanimity in a community isn't looking hard enough, you know? stuff <laughs> because that doesn't... That <laughs> and, and, and of course there's disagreement and conflict because it's that, you know, people are people, that's the way things are. And you know, resolution comes out of constant dialogue and constant conflict and resolution of, of issues. And you're not going to make everybody happy. Some people are still going to think it's changing too fast, and some people are going to think it's not changing fast enough. Um, some people want some things to stay the same. Some people want to change them. But, you know, that whole evolutionary process is going to go on. You're never going to freeze it. I mean, there's a museum in Talk. It's quite a good museum. And if you want to see how things were, you go to the museum. But the community is not a museum. You know, it's a, it's a living thing, and it changes all the time.
1: That's a very, very good point. And but one of the things I really noticed in Sagada in particular, and probably most of the mountain provinces, there's even though with all of this development, with all of these changes that are hap- happening now, there's this undercurrent of prevailing culture, You know, the, the traditional culture that still sort of, sort of permeates everyone's activities and permeates everyone's like, lifestyle well, in a way. People
0: yeah? are proud of the culture. Which makes a big difference. In a lot of places, indigenous people have been taught to be ashamed of it, that traditional culture is primitive, it's something that is kind of embarrassing, that you know, being modern is is a good thing. And here, you know, people are still modern. Um, you'll see a traditional ritual going on, people are sitting there with their iPhones you know, taking pictures. But that isn't seen as contradictory in any way. I mean, people don't see the culture as being a primitive thing that they need to leave behind. They see it as... Something that's living and organic. And the price of that is change, of course, but the fact that it is still respected, it's still admired, it's still an object of
1: pride rather than shame
0: is really important
1: to me. And I think like even even now, and I've been to a few weddings in Sagada, a traditional wedding is much more expensive than a modern wedding. <laughs> by by quite quite a margin. It is and it? even it
0: isn't. Um, remember that at a traditional wedding, everybody comes and gives you money.
1: That's true. That's true as yeah, well. Yeah.
0: At the end of the day, you may not break even, but you know, it's not that far off. Um, I mean, I, I, I've been through it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't keep the books on it. But I, but I think, um, yeah, the, the donations do tend to cover or close to cover. And of course, the labor is all free. You know, it's all donated. You know, the day before... That's true. That's you know, you true. have probably 100, 150 people there preparing food and preparing everything, getting everything ready. And mm-hmm. that's just something people do. It's Again, it's part of the culture. It's not...
1: You know, right. You don't and hire. I think weddings, weddings traditionally, it's really meant for people to bear witness, you know? So as many people as are there to bear witness, the more legitimate your wedding is. I mean, traditionally, that would be the case, wouldn't it?
0: I guess. I never really got that sense. I mean... I don't think people really think about why. It's just something people have always done. And it's a festive occasion. It's a time to be happy. So let's all get together and be happy. Kill a bunch of pigs. (laughs) I mean, I never really thought of it as a sense of legitimacy. It's just more it's a thing people do and have always done. And I think people Mm -hmm. sometimes, uh, anthropologists, see it as a redistributive thing where Wealthier families will equalize the wealth by killing more of their pigs and feeding more people, things like that. But I don't. Th- that may be true, but I don't think people think of it that way. I don't think it's a conscious thing. It's, just, it's, a, it's something that people have always done. I mean, why do people in the cities go and spend God, some staggering sum to rent a fancy church and have all these... <coughs> it's just what people do. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Maybe it's a status well, thing to a point. That's
1: that's for sure, for sure. And I think, really, now that's that's what it is. You know, sometimes we we fail to look at things at just the face value. You know, it's done. People do it, and we just need to respect and enjoy that whole process that people do. You know,
0: as long as it's not hurting anybody. I mean, it's. Um, I remember there used to be
1: a bit of a thing here
0: where. People would look over and they and think, God, those people are, you know, they kill too many with The, with the, the, the carabaos are, are valuable. They're a resource. They're, they can be used in agriculture. So why would you just kill them all for a wedding? Um, here you kill one buffalo and a bunch of pigs. <laughs> but, but again, you could overdo it. I mean, you wouldn't want to kill all your livestock just for a wedding because you wouldn't have any more livestock. But um, I don't think people really do that. So yeah, you could push something to an extreme, and it would become destructive. But uh, those things tend to work, work themselves out and to equalize. You know, people aren't stupid; they figure out what's what works and what's sustainable and what's not.
1: Uh, okay, I think um, I think we have enough. Uh, this, we've okay. been talking for almost. An hour and a half now, and uh, but thank you very much, Steve. Uh, just a few last questions: Are there any books that you would recommend that you currently read? You're currently reading, or books that you would recommend people to read?
0: Uh, actually, the, all the books I'm reading now are books I'm rereading. <laughs> it's stuff that I read a long time ago, and I, I, we moved house some time ago, so I packed all the books away in boxes. I yeah, sort of open books up, open boxes up. And of course, right now with a couple of small kids in the house, I don't get to read all that much. I mean, the only way I can, get, I can read is to get constipated, spend a lot of time on the toilet. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, actually, I, did, I just finished rereading uh, Raymond Bonner's book on the Marcos period. And uh, okay. years of solitude, two
1: Hundred Years of Solitude, okay. Two very
0: different, but actually somewhat similar books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, well, thank you very much, Steve. And I hope I can get to Sagada soon and finally get on the kayak. It's the season now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's the start of the season.
0: Um, well, I mean, right now it's probably real brown, the water, because the first few rains sluice all the silt out. You need a typhoon to come in and blow all the shit. But you know to start out, basically all you need is a little bit of still water that 's deep enough to to play in and learn to roll in um, because again, we do have that deficiency of really easy stuff, so it, you do need to spend some time in that that flat water you know to get comfortable And expect, expect to expect
1: to spend some time upside down <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal myself for that. Hopefully, because I can't wait to get out. But you know, this whole thing is over.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would mean, really like to get sort of a small group together and uh, to get people paddling again. Because um, yeah, that would be nice. Can't do it alone.
1: What an insightful discussion with Steve. I've always. Come out with fresh perspectives every single time that i've had a chat with him he really sees things through a somewhat different lens from the rest of us in some ways one of the things that really jumped out for me here is something that i myself have experienced in the cordillera how a lot of tourists are saying that oh we need to keep this place like it was 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago but people need to realize that this is a constantly evolving thing culture is a constantly evolving thing and like he said if you want to see the old culture then maybe you should go to a museum because that's where the old culture is while a lot of the old culture does permeate around the Cordillera, you'll still see it in our homes, in our culture, in our basically everyday life. It still permeates many people's lives, many families' lives. We also evolve with the times and being Indigenous doesn't necessarily mean always wearing the Bahag. Yes, we still wear the Bahag, but we choose to wear them now during special occasions. And this is something that is evolving. Um, one of the most interesting things for me is, is seeing these creators from the communities, you know, they, they create with their iPhones and you'll see it during, during community celebrations when we have the Kanyaos where the younger generation are now using iPhones, cameras, modern devices to actually tell their own stories, the the stories of their own communities. And for me, that is incredibly important, not only in preserving the culture that we have, but also evolving this culture. Nothing is stagnant, everything evolves. And thanks to Steve, a lot of you now know a little bit more of this culture. I took a short break after the 10th episode of the Wildcast, simply because I thought maybe it's time to take a step back and see where we want to bring this podcast, bring this medium. And I've decided that uh, I think I'm going to continue with this over, even after this whole pandemic is over. One of the things that I've enjoyed really is conversing and talking to so many different personalities about their lives and and just exchanging ideas and learning from all of these people from all over the world. Some of them are good friends of mine. Some of them are acquaintances who now I know more about. And this for me has value for myself. And I hope It has value for the rest of you who are listening to this podcast. And I would like to thank you all for subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast to your friends. It has been uh, an incredible privilege to bring you these stories. And I hope to be able to bring more of these stories to you in the next few episodes of the podcast. We're always thinking of like young creators because I do feel like there's so many talented people out there, especially in the local setting. It's just a matter of like finding the right platform or finding the right break for them, for people to understand that, oh, I should follow, I should hear this voice, I should see the way he sees the world. Next week on the podcast, we have Ayan De La Torre, an incredibly, incredibly talented young woman who has developed a platform a community where to next incredibly popular platform on instagram here in the philippines and i'm really excited to share her story with all of you